0: I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Today we're hosting professor of politics at Princeton, Keith Whittington. He's also the chair of the academic committee of the newly launching Academic Freedom Alliance, an organization you can find more about online. The basic intention is to foster intellectual honesty and intellectual freedom, like the name of the organization. Uh, Keith. It's a pleasure to finally have you on The Open Mind. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. I really
0: appreciate it. Um, in launching this nonpartisan academic freedom alliance, I, I want to just ask you from the, from the gate so we understand, this is a group of people who would self-identify as Democrats or Republicans, liberals, conservatives, libertarians. Um, is it as diverse as people who are anarchists as well. I mean, how diverse is the forming committee of this 200 plus faculty cohort?
1: Yeah, we made a real effort to build a broad coalition across the ideological spectrum uh, in order to defend these issues. We do think that uh, faculty across the political spectrum are under threat. Um, I think uh, people understand that they uh, have risk, those challenges may come from different directions, but there's a lot of common ground here um, in terms of worries about the future of academic freedom and a desire to protect it. We really wanted to build an organization in which we found that common ground and built some real bridges um, across the political
0: spectrum. If you were to describe the type of episodes that inspired the creation of this group, right? Not specific instances at Princeton or Yale or University of Texas or University of Alabama, But the different types of incidents that are having a chilling effect on academic freedom that you and your colleagues on faculties around the country feel it and students too. What are the different kinds of episodes that have led to this consciousness we need to support the academic and intellectual freedom of the faculty.
1: Unfortunately, we're still seeing some of the same threats uh, that we saw 100 years ago uh, in American higher education. Uh, There's a new technological spin, new political spin on some of those threats, um, but the threats themselves are really fairly persistent, remarkably uh, persistent in some ways, although uh, I think we are a little better off now than we used to be on some dimensions worse than others. Um, So at the very core of academic freedom and what we're most concerned about protecting for academics um, is protection of scholarship and the ability of faculty to do their research uh, without censorship, without sanction for what it is they're finding. They need to be able to examine controversial, sensitive uh, topics um, and reach the best understandings that they can about what the truth of those matters are, even if the result is it might offend people because uh, their results are challenging to uh, mainstream values or expectations. Um, likewise, faculty need protections for uh, the classroom and what they're doing in terms of teaching students. And again, they need the capacity to be able to talk about controversial topics in a classroom setting uh, in which uh, they have a freedom to explore those issues uh, with their students. Finally, faculty have the responsibility to be able to speak in public um, both as private citizens talking about political affairs more generally, but also talking about their research and things they have particular expertise on. And again, they need to be able to talk about controversial subjects in public uh, without universities threatening them with sanction as a consequence of things they might say. Um, as you might expect, uh, the rise of social media has made that last core uh, category Um, a particularly sore point for faculty. Um, Lots of instances of faculty saying controversial things on social media that winds up generating controversies. But we're still seeing controversies around just research and teaching as well, uh, where pressure is brought to bear against university administrators to fire or sanction university faculty for things that they are saying in public. Um, And as a consequence, hampering their ability to do the very center activities of their jobs, uh, which is to engage in scholarship and teaching.
0: When we get into those gray areas, Keith, of what is conduct appropriate for the classroom, uh, is that different from what is conduct appropriate in the research lab, right? Is there a common set of values that your alliance wants to apply to the classroom and the research lab so that there is a real coherent understanding of what faculty should be embracing as what is fair game, fair Fair ground for them to be on?
1: Well, there's certainly going to be some differences between what you can expect people to do uh, in research and what people ought to be doing in the classroom. the concept, the particular substantive content of what it is they expose students to is likely to be somewhat different. Certainly the process is going to be somewhat uh, different um, on the whole. You certainly expect in the classroom, though, that faculty, for example, are not bringing to bear um, outside topics to talk about in class that have no bearing on the relationship of the subject matter um, that they're supposed to be discussing. You can't use that captive audience um, of your students to go off and talk about unrelated uh, things. We expect the engineering professor to spend his time in class talking about engineering, not talking about uh, politics um, and the like. On the other hand, you also need the freedom to be able to explore difficult and controversial topics. You needed to have students have the freedom to express themselves on their understandings of those topics in order to try to bring them um, around to uh, thinking about it uh, in a more sophisticated way than they might um, coming in in the first place. Um, so I think our expectations of how classroom uh, dynamics are gonna work is a little different than what we expect in the research and scholarly environment, but in both places, we expect faculty to be very professional. We expect them to, to um, uh, represent professional standards um, and reflect professional competence and what it is they're teaching and what the
0: research uh, is that they're doing. The morality uh, or the ethical barometer of what is uh, conduct appropriate for the classroom. Um, in, in discussions that are really hot button or sensitive, um, when it comes to forming some kind of understanding of what is appropriate uh, and what is crossing the line, Is your alliance taking a position on that uh, as it relates to communicating about, um, you know, racial, cultural or economic difference in a way that is offensive uh, to people or in a way that is destructive rather than constructive?
1: I think as a group, what we're concerned with is defending those outer boundaries of what is professionally competent behavior in the classroom. There are very important discussions to be had um, among faculty and including others beyond the faculty, including students and others, um, about how best to um, act in the classroom. And there certainly are choices to be made within the boundaries of what's professionally competent, what's professionally ethical, there are choices to be made about how to do classroom discussions in a better or worse fashion. Uh, We ought to be having those conversations. I'm confident that many members of this organization will want to be having those conversations. Um, And there's some expectation that there's going to be an evolution and change over time about uh, what's the best practice about how to talk about controversial topics in your classroom, what counts as a controversial topic, and what is it people are going to be particularly uh, sensitive about and how to approach that. Um, Our concern as an organization is not primarily going to be to try to uh, identify, here are the best practices, and everyone ought to adhere to them. Um, Our concern is to say there's a a range of practices that are at least within the field of professionally competent practices, um, and as long as people are operating within those bounds, uh, they shouldn't be sanctioned, um, even though they might well be criticized, that they're not doing it as well as they could, um, and they ought to do a better job. And I think that kind of criticism, of course, is perfectly fair play.
0: But when you say it's fair play or fair game for that kind of criticism, I think that the, the kind of line of demarcation here is where there is conduct that crosses a boundary um, that is not just to be criticized, but is um, not necessarily to be punished in the town square, um, but that is going to require sanction or um some kind of response from the community. You know, the question I have for you is where does it become necessary to take a faculty member um and, and put him or her on, on um leave uh right. or not be in the classroom anymore? I mean, what are those those absolute lines um that would You know, have a clear basis of of understanding um, that even though that is protected under the First Amendment, um, that is not conduct for a professor to engage in on Twitter or in the classroom.
1: Right, and I think you put your finger on a very important point, which is that there's a difference between what's protected in the First Amendment and what it is we expect faculty to be doing in the classroom. Um, Those are two different standards, uh, importantly, that there are things uh, that are completely lawful speech, speech that's protected by the First Amendment if you were to engage in them in the public square, that nonetheless we do not expect faculty to be engaging in uh, when they're trying to teach um, a class. Part of what academia is about um, is weeding out an awful lot of speech Um, uh, that is perfectly uh, normal uh, for average Americans to be saying in lots of other contexts, but that we don't expect to be um, occurring uh, within a specific academic environment. Um, So certainly there are some very classic kinds of boundaries uh, to be thinking about in in terms of of where faculty have gone too far and as a consequence um, are appropriately sanctioned by their universities for their speech. So as I mentioned, it is possible for faculty to be using their... Um, classrooms as platforms to talk about unrelated controversial subject matter. So again, that sort of engineering professor who decides he wants to spend the class talking about politics, for example, um, is engaging in a kind of speech that's obviously lawful and constitutionally protected, but totally inappropriate in the classroom. And a university could quite appropriately sanction somebody uh, for using their classroom uh, in that way, in a way that violates professional standards uh, and is inappropriate. Likewise, their expectation is that faculty, when they are teaching, are teaching professionally competent material. Um, and so you can imagine a faculty member, uh, for example, trying to uh, teach a class in which they're teaching students things that the a uh, professional as a whole thinks is, in fact, just wrong. Um, uh, so uh, imagine a Holocaust denier who was also a 20th century European historian. And he's teaching 20th century European history um, and explaining to students that the Holocaust never happened. Um, uh, that's lawful speech. Uh, we can imagine somebody um, uh, publishing articles in a newspaper, uh, making these kinds of arguments, totally inappropriate for somebody to use, to use their classroom to convey that uh, kind of argument because it's professionally incompetent speech. And universities could appropriately sanction somebody uh, for engaging in that kind of behavior. Likewise, if faculty were attacking students in class, so you were directing racial slurs toward members of the class um, and and otherwise harassing individuals in the classroom, that's obviously inappropriate, professionally incompetent, um, and universities would have a real stake in removing a professor um, who did that. Even laying aside, those kinds of problems that might happen more in the background. For example, a faculty member who was uh, not grading students fairly um, uh, because they uh, were uh, biased against people of... uh, particular races, or religions, or political orientations, for example, um, and as a consequence, we're marking them down and on on tests and the like. Um, a university, I think properly, they could actually find good evidence that that was happening, could reasonably sanction a faculty member for conducting uh, their classroom in, in that kind of way. Um, so there is some speech that we expect um, people to... Um, uh, be careful about how they are using the classroom context, um, and we expect the kind of care that they're exercising in that context to be different uh, than the kind of care they would be exercising uh, when they're on their tw- personal Twitter feed, for example.
0: I think there's a difference also between, you know, preserving a, a, a safe space in which your your students cannot be intellectually challenged, and safe as a cop-out to, you know, deal with challenging issues, and then the kind of safe space which should be preserved, which is not going to dehumanize anyone. And so the instances that have occurred in recent memory, both with the academic and journalistic communities, involve incidents in which words were expressed that are dehumanizing to the person hearing them, even if they're not being directed at those people. Right. So, I mean, is that fair? Is it is it is it not fair that that in the sort of modern sensibility, there is a sensitivity to the expression of words. And of course, the person who hears a word in when when it's not directed at them, or a sentiment for that matter, it doesn't have to be a word, right, um may not want to confront the person uttering it and may want to take it through the official channels of that university or institution. Uh, So, you know, where is the the gray area when it comes to communications that um, directly or indirectly dehumanize people and having a, a process whereby academic freedom is both encouraged and we understand that academic freedom should never give license to or justify dehumanization, even if the faculty member were to disagree that what they can, did right. constituted dehumanizing someone or something.
1: Right. Well, of course, it's possible for an individual faculty member to disagree with the judgment of their peers about whether or not they've engaged in uh, incompetent behavior in general or professionally disturbing behavior, or as you say, in this case, uh, behavior that is dehumanizing in some ways. Uh, Universities need uh, procedural protections in place in order to evaluate uh, what actually happened. Um, and make some assessment as to whether or not uh, what happened um, is within the realm of professional competence or whether or not a faculty member has uh, engaged in behavior uh, that we don't expect uh, to take place in the classroom. Um, And they're important, as I said, they're important conversations we had about what the best practices actually look like. And so what's the best way of teaching uh, sensitive material, um, uh, for example? Um, There is some kinds of materials you want to engage in in class um, and some kinds of topics that need to be uh, discussed um, that are precisely about um, uh, situations and words and philosophies um, and uh, facts about the past um, that have been dehumanizing. Um, that you uh, want students to encounter uh, material in which people made arguments um, that are, uh, from our perspective, dehumanizing um, and oppressive. Um, We don't want to shelter students from encountering that kind of material. The challenge from a faculty member's perspective is how to teach that material in a way um, that uh, engages students so that they can grapple with and understand the materials and understand the arguments being presented without themselves feeling like they're being dehumanized as a consequence of of confronting that material. Um, Faculty sometimes make mistakes in doing that. Some people are not nearly as careful as they should be um, in doing that. Again, I think we can have good conversations about how best to do that, and that's going to be uh, changing over time, given the particular sensitivities of students. And as that evolves, you need to evolve in your own teaching practices um, and how you uh, try to teach them. Um, And of course, we should never expect faculty to be uh, themselves directly attempting to dehumanize uh, their own uh, students. Um, uh, That would always be uh, inappropriate um, and wrong. but I think we're not always as careful as we should be about distinguishing between instances in which a, uh, an ind- one individual is trying to dehumanize another individual uh, through their rhetoric or actions um, and trying to expose students to um, uh, material um, that uh, genuinely does involve efforts to dehumanize um, individuals, but is not directed toward trying to dehumanize the particular students in the classroom, uh, for example.
0: Keith, you'll hopefully appreciate this as a political scientist and someone who studied history, it's, it's really confounding to me that the term wokeness has been associated with some sort of avant-garde new high high standard of uh, conduct, um, you know, Because the founding of of Woke actually derives from the wide awakes that was a group of young men who supported President Lincoln and his movement to abolish slavery and support for the Union, the preservation of the Union in the Civil War. And it's striking because of the fact that the Republican Party uh, has virtually no knowledge or care for the fact that woke derived from a Republican, the person who's really considered the forebearer or forefather of Republicanism. Now, I'm not so sure liberals know this either. No, right. um, But the truth is that when you hear someone in his outgoing communications on Twitter, like Secretary Pompeo, criticize wokeness in the context of multiculturalism and liberalism, what was wokeness in in the mid 1800s and reconstruction? the wide awakes were fighting for the abolition of slavery. Right. So if you believe in the abolition of slavery, you are by definition woke according to that 19th century definition. So you know, to, to posture yourself as anti-woke is actually to posture yourself as anti-human rights and anti-conservatism, if you believe in the rendition of conservatism that is honoring natural law and every universal you know, person's right to, to exist. Uh, And not be enslaved. I just wonder how you read that because there's so much so much history lost in the discussion about those lines that are being crossed and what is wokeness and what is ethical, uh, etc.
1: Yeah, no. I think, of course, this is uh, something we're always losing: it is it is nuance when we talk about these subjects, as well as historical lineages um, about uh, where these words come from, where these concepts come from, uh, what the arguments are that are attached to them. Uh, unfortunately, it is. Uh, almost inevitable in public political discussions that uh, you sacrifice that nuance, you sacrifice that complication, things get misrepresented uh, in various ways. It's extraordinarily frustrating from a scholar's perspective. Uh, I, I've recently been giving talks precisely referencing the wide awake clubs uh, as as this uh, part of this lineage of Uh, anti-slavery thought and the political battle um, to eliminate slavery, um, which um, obviously resonates uh, right up to uh, the present. Um, But of course, the idea of uh, woke and its current incarnation includes not only uh, uh, that history of thinking about slavery, but also more recent controversies as well. We're inevitably going to have disputes about uh, some of these uh, recent controversies, but uh, I I do wish that it was possible and and in universities you strive for uh, trying to turn down the heat a little bit um, on some of these debates, take each other a little more seriously and charitably, uh, get past uh, the throwing around Um, uh, pejoratives, um, and think a little more seriously about the nuances of the arguments that are being presented, um, and recognize that many of these issues are complicated. They're often not easy. Um, And uh, sometimes we can even find that there's more common ground than it it, uh, first appears um, if you can get past uh, these initial efforts to simply be dismissive of our opponents.
0: Well, Keith, I hope one of your first undertakings as chair of the Academic Committee of the Alliance is to emphasize that wokeness was born out of that history because this is where the woke definitions intersect with your work because the question is, is my professor woke enough? Uh, is my study woke enough? Um, you know, that would be a fair understanding if, if woke was ethical and moral, right? But I think that a lot of people have conflated woke with not ethical or moral, but again, some kind of, uh, status, um, the abolition of slavery or the anti-slavery movement wasn't really about status. It was about morality and ethics. Um, so I guess my question is, how, how did the, the woke definition get so far off the train track of what right. it originally meant? I mean, do you have a sense of that? You've been in academia for some time. You've written a lot of books about right. free speech. Uh, how did it you know, get off the train track so so much?
1: Well, it's certainly tied now to specific political movements and specific uh, sets of political arguments um, that uh, in some aspects of which are very mainstream, in which I think there's a tremendous amount of support, and other aspects um, are uh, more radical. And as a consequence, have uh, less political support. Part of what I find when I'm talking about a lot of these issues, whether it's a term like uh, woke or it's a term like cancel culture, um, or also in the campus free speech context, safe spaces and trigger warnings, you often have to then ask people, well, specifically, what do you mean when you're referencing this? When you're talking about hate speech or you're talking about wokeness, um, tell me more about the specific thing you have in mind. Um, because it turns out people are often referring to very different things. And and when we're talking about wokeness, for example, the people who are advocating for it and the people who are denouncing it often have very different things in their own heads about what, what it is they're talking about. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think your example of the uh, Holocaust denier is really important here because... You know Abraham Lincoln said, "When new views become true views, I'll adopt them," and I think that's true of of morality as well, not just um, economic data. You know what what sure. the unemployment statistics are for a given month, and so I mean the the wide awakes as they were conceived were dedicated to canceling, yes, yeah. canceling right. slavery. Right. right. So you know, just as there ought not be a litmus test for a US senator or a or a um, you know a judge on the basis of idiosyncrasies or eccentricities in their worldviews, there are certain basic ideas that we want to accept. And I think one of them should be that anyone who's in the classroom should accept that normatively, subjectively, it was constructive for society for the wide awakes to cancel Slavery, and I mean, if you were to apply for a job, whether it's at Mississippi State or Yale or you know University of Oklahoma, and you were to say or demonstrate your view that slavery should not have been canceled, I don't think you should be hired, right? right. Just point right. blank. So you know, when when we think of this this idea uh, of defining woke. Um, you know, in, in, in similarly understanding right. the value of Black lives and Black human beings. I mean, do, do you agree that when we do put definitions on the bones, like you just said, yeah. that there should be some criteria assessing uh, people who are educating our youth, whether it's grade school or college profs?
1: Well, just to start with that last point, I I think we want to distinguish between grade school teachers and college professors, right? They're engaged in a very different enterprise. We're dealing with a very different student body. um, And there are important distinctions uh, to be drawn about uh, what we want and expect um, out of the two, um, uh, such that we don't necessarily think that the same standards ought to be applying to college professors uh, as we think are applying to uh, elementary school teachers. But I I think the larger point is certainly a correct one, that um, on the whole, societies evolve and develop in part by um, uh, moving as to what constitutes uh, acceptable behavior um, in society and what doesn't, uh, what's politically on the table um, and uh, reasonable to debate and what's not, um, and things uh, wind up getting taken off that agenda. Um, And uh, people operating in mainstream society um, understand that, Um, and ought to expect it. And the process by which we make these changes um, are often uh, messy um, and sometimes heated and divisive. Um, uh, But when we're on the other side of them, you you do form a new consensus. And the new consensus puts some people on the margins. uh, And that's how things operate. I think that's totally fair and perfectly reasonable in certain kinds of contexts. I should also note, though, that part part of what and, and academia does that as well, right? There are ideas. Um, that um, as a professional scholar and working in a particular discipline, for example, uh, you understand have been rejected and you would be regarded as professionally competent if you're trying to teach students those ideas and you're making arguments on behalf of those ideas that everyone in your profession understands um, have been long rejected. Um, On the other hand, we also want to make space for people who um, have very unorthodox and unconventional views. That's what's been attractive about academia.
0: You were running out of time, but I I just wanted to to say, Keith, I think it's important to distinguish between revisionist history, revisionist morality, and, you know, when revising the record in some way uh, becomes antithetical to civil society. We could go on forever. I really appreciate the work you're doing at the Alliance. I encourage our viewers to check it out. Professor of Politics at Princeton, Keith Whittington, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online.
1: Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from... Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.